You're listening to the CFMEU Mining and Energy Podcast. Well, miners in Queensland might not know it, but they owe a great debt to an 87-year-old woman called Judith Martin. Now, Judith won a great victory in 1963 for her community, and she did it with a bottle of water. Okay, let's rewind. In the late 1950s, the world economy was booming and Japanese steel mills desperately needed coking coal. Coal had been mined in the Bowen Basin for for many years, but solely for domestic use, fueling power stations, very small ones, and uh, also providing coal for uh, the rail systems. Uh, The Americans came out, decided that uh, there was very good coking coal uh, in central Queensland, in the Bowen Basin, and uh, there was a a growing demand for it from uh, increasing use of steel in Japan. That's what kicked it off at Maurer, and it grew exponentially to, uh, to what it is now, a massive export industry, primarily based on metallurgical coal for steelmaking. That's former General Secretary Andrew Vickers. He says local company Teese joined forces with American mob Peabody and Japanese outfit Mitsui to develop the Bowen Basin's first open-cut mine at Maurer. The Americans were uh, particularly offensive. Uh, they, they were anti-union, um, they wanted non-union mines, but unfortunately for them, uh, the Australian coal mining industry was, uh, was highly unionised and in fact there were preference to unionist clauses in uh, the awards that covered coal miners. So the, the Yanks were pretty ticked off about that. The, the Japanese weren't uh, much better. And uh, TIS, the uh, Australian entity, uh, were a ruthless right-wing hard-nosed bunch of employers who'd been mining coal at Calide uh, prior to them uh, entering into the joint venture at TPM at Mara. The Americans were used to a non-union workforce. Even now in the US, mine workers are paid only one-fifth more than average private sector wages. Australian miners are paid two-thirds more. So. As they developed the mine, the Americans refused to provide any accommodation for their workforce, even though Maura was a tiny town with no accommodation or other facilities. In fact, the Australian company in the mining venture tried to profit from the situation by selling the miners' tents at huge prices. They were real entrepreneurs, uh, the Tees brothers. They bought tents. Um, very cheaply, and then they on-sold them to the miners at a massive markup because that was the only accommodation that was available for the early miners at Maurer and their families, for that matter, was intense. Conditions were horrendous. Just outside the front gate, families were living in tents. The lucky ones were in corrugated iron sheds. There was no power or running water or refrigeration. They used pit toilets, and when it rained, the whole camp became a muddy quagmire. Water was brought to families by the mine water truck, which watered the roads of the mine. It was filthy, muddy and full of sticks and leaves. At the time, a five-months pregnant Judith Martin was making a home for her six daughters while her husband Mick worked at the mine. The actual um, tin shed was all in one. It was, um, it was lined, but what we, we petitioned like part of it off for my husband and I, and then the girls all lived in like, they had bunks or, that was, that's how, that's how that ha- it just had to be because you didn't have any room. Well, we extended and put a kitchen on, which, which made it a little bit more, you know, livable. The family shared the bush camp with kangaroos and snakes and wild dogs. And then one of my daughters got bitten by a, a, 
a redback spider we had to rush her over to Bilawila to the hospital. The boss at the joint Tease Peabody Mitsui operation was an American called Harvey Grounds and his attitude was simple. When the unions more or less approached the manager of uh, uh, Peabody was an American he said we're here he said to mine coal not build houses. That was his attitude and that was his attitude when I went down to court too was the same attitude. I'm here, our company's here to get coal out, not worry about, you know, the way that our employees live. And the Americans certainly had what they would call attitude. The attitude, this is the attitude of the Americans when they came out here. They don't, they weren't worried about their employees because that's how they lived in America. You know, the miners and every, everything over there. And um, that got up. Our noses a bit there in Mara, you know, to think that that's that's how they wanted us to live. They didn't care about families. They they just worried about the money part of it. I'm sure. At the end of 1962, the union sprung their trap. The local union leaders, in conjunction with their uh, state and federal officials, looked for the opportunity to put some uh, extraordinary pressure on TPM to do something about the accommodation arrangements in Mara. They waited until the first drag line, uh, Big Red its name was, and was to be the first walking drag line in the coal industry in Australia. When it was due to walk off its construction pad with a whole host of uh, government and other dignitaries present, the miners uh, collectively went on strike and that stopped the drag line from walking. The employers were furious, the Queensland government was furious, the um, Minister for Mines at the time who was there uh, accused the miners of, of it being a communist plot to uh, downgrade Australia's relationship with Japan. They were mad. <laughs> but that's what it started. They were ordered back to work. Um, they refused to go back to work uh, until the coal industry tribunal, Justice Gallagher, intervened, uh, undertook to conduct uh, an inspection and a hearing, and ultimately that led to the 1963 arbitration. Judith told union leaders she wanted to appear as a witness at the arbitration court in Brisbane because she believed she had a trump card. Maybe I said it's all right to talk about how cloudy and how dirty the water is, I said, but when they've got a bottle that they can, he can, you know, the judge can see what it's like, what we are drinking. When she was called to the witness box, the first woman ever to appear at the arbitration court in Brisbane, she whipped out her bottle of muddy water. Very lightly, I pulled out this bottle of water and I sat it on the in front of me and I said, here, Mr Gallagher, Judge Gallagher, I said, there's what the water that we're drinking out there at Mara at the moment. And he turned around and said to me, well, put it this way, if I was in that position, he said, I'd make sure I had a big bottle of whiskey next to it. The American boss was about to learn he had indeed come to Australia to build houses. So then he decided that he would put it to the company that they had a certain time to build these first six houses in Maori. The company dragged its heels, but after 12 months, they had built some housing for their workers. He came into my house, which was the second, one, two, third one built, and he had a look around and he asked me questions about it. Was I satisfied with the house and all this? And of course I said, yes, it was very, very good. My baby was, I'd had her by then, another girl. And he went and had a look at her and he grabbed a hand and he put this all this uh, money in a hand, notes, and said, 
this is for your uh, baby. And that was the beginning of a great friendship between Judge Gallagher and myself. He used to send me Christmas cards, give me a ring now and again. And that was a very, very touching scene when he came up to Mara to see them first six houses. Judith went on to have a happy life in the now thriving Mara. We raised our daughters out there. They all, they've all ended up all right. Every one of my six, six daughters, the seventh, never married. They married into the mining fraternity. And even my granddaughters, I've got two granddaughters out at Mara that still works in Mara, the, the husbands. And I've got granddaughters up in Murrumbah. So it's a, it's a fraternity, I think, that once you're in that mining atmosphere, that you never forget it. But Judith will never forget those union leaders who helped establish decent working conditions on the early coalfields. John Curry was, was uh, one of the main ones. Bill McKenstry was also one, but he was FEDFA, but he was a very, very staunch uh, union guy for that for the FED. But um, Cyril Vickers was a very nice man. I think he's passed on now and I, I've got a feeling his son might be still in the union mm -hmm. movement. But very, very nice man. Came out and um, uh, quite a few times they had public union meetings and he would, you know, get up and speak and everything. Andrew Vickers, Cyril's son, says the 1963 strike changed workers' conditions in the Bowen Basin forever. There were a number of very small communities uh, prior to mining, uh, Mara being one of them. It was you know, what the Americans would have called a one-horse town. But uh, similarly, places like Blackwater, where there was you know, a post office and a pub and the railway station master's house and not much else. After the union's victory at Mara, the union made it very clear that no mines would open unless proper accommodation was available for the workforce. And the union had that ace up its sleeve of the preference to labour clause in the awards, where they could simply say, uh, no accommodation, no labour. As a result, uh, Blackwater mushroomed, commencing with the Tease operation at South Blackwater, later the Utah Development Company at, uh, at the Blackwater Open Cut, and then uh, Utah looked to move further north uh, in the Bowen Basin to uh, richer and better grade uh, coking coal deposits. And they decided they would open their Gunyola and Peak Downs mines in the late, very late 60s, early 70s. That led to the township of Moranbar being built actually out of the bush. There was absolutely nothing there. Roads got built, houses got built, ultimately schools got built, ultimately hospitals got built. And that then followed a, a string of, uh, of brand new mining communities uh, like Dysart, like Middlemount, like Thierry, uh, like Glendon, even further north, although Glendon is primarily uh, thermal coal, and also to increases in um, existing towns, small and slightly larger, uh, like uh, Billawila, not far from Mara, uh, Collinsville, of course, expanded, um, and, and so on. That's, that was, Mara was the start of it. Um, the end of it is the fact that there are a number of uh, thriving communities literally hacked out of the bush in central Queensland, all because of the, of the miners' victory at Mara back in 1963. Judith says housing was just the beginning of what the union membership won for Mara. Today, with the young people, they just would not realise what we had to go through. These days, what do they do? They get a job 
out of the mines and they should really join the unions because I, I get a little bit mad to think that all those years ago when them union fellows worked for us to get them houses and not only the houses in Mara, they got a lot, lot of other stuff for Mara. Andrew Vickers shudders to think what living conditions would be like in the Bowen Basin if local miners hadn't banded together to form a strong union. It would be uh, a a series of of shanty communities is what it would be, but the unions would never have permitted that to happen. If it hadn't been Mara, it would have been somewhere else. But um, Mara was obviously the catalyst. The conditions were appalling. It was the first of the big mines in the Bowen Basin focused on the export industry and the companies were making millions out of Australia's resources and they had to make a commitment back to the community and the Mara people and the unions decided enough was enough and as I say that was the start of it. Um, if they hadn't have done it um, it would be unthinkable what those uh, what those communities would be like today. They would be that they would be corrugated iron and, and, and burlap shacks. And for her part, Judith has some parting advice for young miners today. I get a little bit upset when some of the younger ones say, oh, why join the union? And, you know, and then I jump in and I say, only for the unions, you wouldn't be there. You wouldn't have a job in anywhere because they're the ones that fight for you guys. Fight for the people. Well, there you go. You've been told. That's about all we've got time for this episode. I'm Tim Brunero. Talk to you next time.